by what is effectively a circumstance of complete chance, both of our final episodes for 2018 involve a very small amount of gender issues. One with a matter of perspective, Rowan TNG, and one here with DS9 in Prophecy, or Destiny, excuse me. Pro I almost called it Prophecy, because that's pretty much the focus of the entire episode. I'm sorry, I know that's just a minor point. I just find it funny. I do like the little subplot with, uh, what was her name? Uh, Galora and O'Brien. And, <laughs> like, there's this, there's just something in, in general, uh, um, enjoyable about it. I mentioned in just a couple episodes ago the idea of different cultures being different and, you know, finding each other, discussing and whatnot. I think this is a good example of how to do differing cultures, but to do something good with it. In this case, it services the plot, in addition to being mildly amusing. This woman obviously feels like O'Brien has been, you know, coming on to her, because that's how a Cardassian guy would come on to her. Now, he is, of course, not, because, well, A, he's O'Brien, and he's not the cheating type, but B, and more to the point, that's not how humans do mating. Well, I shouldn't say that's how, at least not how he does mating rituals. I should, obviously, humans is kind of a grand uh, statement, isn't it? We're a little more diverse than just Terran, but anyways. Um, and I also love how, as a consequence of their interactions, we reveal some gender bias by her. Because on Cardassia, apparently, the guys just are not that good at engineering. Now, I don't know if that's actually true or not. That could just be a, a byproduct of the Cardassian Union. Um, one of the things that I could see the Union doing is basically a form of a caste system, right? If you are such and such, either of this bloodline or of this gender or of this house or whatever, then you will go into this type of industry. You will work in this type of manner, and that is mandated to you. I could see the Union doing that. So it comes with, it's, it stands to reason that it's entirely possible that this bias is completely, you know, specious. However, it has a degree of understandability because women are the ones assigned to the science division, right? Because of the way the union is organized. And I wish we knew a little bit more about that, like just a little bit more insight into the Cardassian Union and how it's structured would have been cool. I also find it interesting how apparently they already knew about the Order's interaction here about the fact that they had an Obsidian Order agent who was with them. Now, they make that very, they make their disdain very clear very early on, and it's very obvious that the Order just has people who are agents all over the place. I'm reminded of a line in Star Wars The Old Republic, of all games, but hear me out. It's a bit where you're talking to a Keeper, and as, as an Imperial agent, and he says, under, the, under this particular circumstance, go ahead and be open and honest about the fact that you are an Imperial agent. The additional fear and respect that that will engender will assist you in your mission. In other words, I've always kind of liked the idea that some of the Obsidian Order agents are basically running around with giant neon signs over their heads saying, I'm an Obsidian Order agent, because that way that, that everyone else knows the Order's watching them. Because they're right there. And there's a lot of legitimate uh, value in that kind of a thing, which I like. Um, looking at my notes here. Uh, I want to give praise to Eric Avari. He does a good job with what little his role is. If anything, I wish he had more of a role. He basically plays a surprisingly reasonable 
biased Bajoran religious leader. I know that sounds strange, but he is. He, it would have been very easy for another actor to play this as a mad, raving lunatic, or you know, some kind of mad prophecy thing, or oh my God, death to the Cardassians. But Eric Avari, who I do enjoy as an actor in general, manages to add some simple humanity to it, for lack of a thing. Actually, I don't want to use humanity. Some simple humbleness to his role. He comes across someone who really does legitimately believe this, but does have biases, which he acknowledges by the end of the episode. I like how Odo calls, pretty much calls him out on that. He has his own particular biases, which mean he interprets the prophecy towards his agenda. Just like you do, Cisco. And Cisco's like, what? But it's true. This is one of the interesting things when it comes to fiction. You can make a prophecy that is 100% true, but... If you want to do something with that, there's a lot of ways to do it. And apparently they, they considered many of those routes when they were making this episode. Uh, maybe a prophecy about him being the emissary and it becoming more and more true as they fight against it more and more. Or maybe there's going to be this prophecy that was going to be this joyous happiness thing or whatever. But anyways, when you present a prophecy like this and you deliberately do it with un, you know with older terms, because obviously someone three millennia ago doesn't know what a com relay, a comet, or a wormhole are, right? <clears throat> you allow interpretation. And that's, I think, one of the more interesting aspects of this episode. It's something that can only really properly be discussed in a fictional environment, because in fiction, the writer can say this prophecy is true, and it is an absolute truth. That's one of the advantages of fiction, is that we can have the very concept of truth, um, which we are lacking in real life. So I like that idea of, okay, I'm going to interpret it this way, you're going to interpret it this way, and everyone kind of interprets it in a different direction. Cisco himself also brings up one of the other fascinating aspects here. This is a prophecy from three millennia ago. If you brought a Bajoran from three millennia ago and dropped them right here into now, there's a pretty good chance that Bajoran would literally not be able to talk to their fellow Bajorans. Maybe not even fully recognize the environment they're in. Three millennia is a long damn time. And for once, the writers seem to actually acknowledge how long that is and how distant that is. And as an aside... I like how this prophecy thing doesn't come out of nowhere. We already know, and have established in the very first episode, that the prophets, which are actual things, have a non-linear sense of time, and thus have no problem communicating certain information to certain people if, for whatever reason, they choose to do so. Hence the prophecies. But again, as Cisco points out, three millennia, language differences, if absolutely nothing else, is a problem. Picture this, if you will. Imagine if Kaiwin was the leader of the Bajoran religion two millennia ago. Now, she has been handed these prophecies, and she wants to, to make sure they're being transferred in and, and kept forward. You know, a new copy of the, the prophecies is being put forward. Now, Kaiwin is a selfish, greedy politician. Excuse me for being redundant. So, what we have here, a type 2 politician, I should be more clear about that. And so... If there was, for whatever reason, some kind of benefit to her to rewrite a couple of words, or maybe just even the position of a comma in that prophecy in order to benefit her, don't you think she would? See, this becomes the problem then, and this is why interpretation is an allowable thing, because this is not immutable truth. We have issues of interpretation. We have issues of uh, clarity as to whether or not this was actually done deliberately and invoked, you know, word for word as carefully as it could throughout the ages. We have issues of understanding of concepts. 
And all of that is presuming the prophecy was true when it first started. Now, we can probably presume that because this is Star Trek and we've already established the prophets. Like, like Kira said, Kira flat out was like, look, I can actually explain this to you in a Starfleet way. And she does so, and I'm actually with her on that. She does a pretty good job of it. But I like Dax's approach a little bit better. Because what Dax says is, if this prophecy didn't exist, what would you do? And Cisco says, well, this is what I would do. And Dax says, then do that. I'm reminded of an episode of TNG, which I have not covered yet. I can't actually think of the name of the episode. It's when a time traveler from the future comes back and, you know, he, he's like a historian, right? And some stuff happens. But there's this wonderful bit where Picard gives a great speech about, and it really is, it is a powerful, awesome speech, and of course, Patrick Stewart nails it, uh, but it, to summarize it excessively, which will of course lose the essence of it, the idea here is, I am going to do what I was going to do anyways, as if you never existed, because I can only do the best that I can in the absence of truth. And I like that. And that's exactly what Cisco decides to do here. We're going to go forward and we're going to make this work. Now, I do like this episode, and I like a few little tidbits of this episode. Um, this is where the, uh, I think this is actually a paraphrase, but I have it memorized as, well, I just wouldn't feel safe without a secondary backup line comes from, which is something I've actually quoted before in real life. I've actually quoted that on my job before uh, when I have worked at network engineering or security. <laughs> because I agree with that statement. In fact, that's the Starfleet and Federation that I think should normally be, rather than the Starfleet we often see in Star Trek, and this is in Enterprise, Voyager, DS9, and uh, TNG, where, oh no, the backups are offline, or, the you know, oh god, mine power has failed and we're screwed, right? And there's, I mean, obviously in some cases it makes sense, but there's too many times when redundancies or backups that are in place in real-life technology are mysteriously absent in Star Trek in order to allow the, the crisis to happen. Maybe most of Starfleet doesn't think like O'Brien does. I don't know. Maybe he'll renovate Starfleet to have those kind of policies, because that would make sense. Anyways, I do love that quote, and it's a great scene. I also, uh, I already mentioned the Odo scene, which is great. Odo nailing the interpretation of prophecy. I also like how they differentiate the two, well, the three, really, scientists. So we've got the affable one and the uptight one. Now, when I, I have to admit, I actually made a mistake here when I was re-watching this episode because I knew one of the three was a uh, Obsidian Order agent. I assumed it was the affable woman. It, no, it's the, it's the incredibly obvious I-don't-belong third woman who shows up later who's the Obsidian Order agent. But I bring that up because I do like how they show this dynamic of just slightly different Cardassian people who are interested in, in this whole peace treaty and more joint operations with either the Federation, the Bajorans, or both. As Cisco says, I want people to get used to the idea of Cardassians walking on the station. I like that sentiment. It's one of the only tools that exists to fight against um, this kind of situation. The Cardassian Union did atrociously, disgustingly, horribly horrible things to the Bajorans. That has to be acknowledged, and, and, and that has to be something that you keep in mind. However, the only way there's only going to ever be some kind of lasting peace between the two is if there is a sufficient amount of time spent normalizing interaction with people who are not disgusting monsters from both sides, right? 
You'd think maybe someday that would actually work for the Horde and the Alliance. But anyways, <clears throat> moving on. Maybe Zakan will get us there. I don't know. Um, a couple other quick notes I like. I like the intro, you know, the uh, the Kinar, which has been portrayed differently in this show several times, actually. This is going back to the syrupy kind of a thing. Uh, the Car the idea of Cardassian customers. Why are they still mistreating Quark? I've mentioned before that that's a weirdly recurring trend in the series, that they just kind of treat Quark like plech, and he just kind of takes it for whatever reason. I know, I know, comic relief. I do also love the 34th and the 35th rule of acquisition, because both of them are very true, and probably some of the only rules of acquisition that I'd actually adhere to. Peace is good for business. War is good for business. <laughs> Anywho... So, oh, I didn't finish talking about the... I like the fact that the one Cardassian woman who starts to really g generate an actual rapport with the crew and ends up really helping us out is the one who is the uptight one. The reason I wanted to say that is because, in my opinion, the affable one is faking it. I could be wrong about that. Obviously, she's not the Obsidian agent, so duh. But I like the idea that she's just someone who is far more polite and far more re respectful. Uh, I shouldn't say respectful is the wrong word. Far more used to social interaction. Whereas the other woman, Galora, she is an engineer, and so she's a lot more honest. In other words, that what we're seeing is not some kind of mask or not some kind of, this is, you know, I must, I must portray myself in this kind of a way. That's actually her. And, you know, very blunt and semi-antisocial. But when you earn her respect, you have it for keeps. Hence why she ousts the order agent and allows them to understand that there was no actual mistake. Not because she cares about the Federation, the Bajoran, or the project, but because she, as an engineer, respects O'Brien as an engineer and has a great deal of faith in the amount of effort he puts into his work and how much pride he has in that work. I like that. And that's very Cardassian, in my opinion. little kiss on the cheek, and she's a lucky woman. That was a nice touch at the end, too. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm very fertile, if that's what you're worried about. Uh, <clears throat> uh, let's see. I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, secondary backup, Oda's interpretation of the thing, the prophecy. Wow, I guess that's actually all I have to say about it. I don't have much to say about this episode. It is an interesting insight into the ways we can use prophecy in fiction. And now, like I said earlier, we kind of have an out because we know these prophecies, at least originally, were true. We can say that with high certainty. We just have all of the things in between then and now to make that uh, have issues. What I also find kind of funny about this, though, is if you think about it, every single one of these prophecies was probably deliberately placed by the by the prophets with their interactions through the orbs and the people over a significant period of time. I find myself wondering if that's all part of a pattern, some kind of deliberate effort, or if to the prophets it's just as if they were reading a bedtime story to someone, right? Or a history book, because again, no, no concept of linear time, right? Just interesting food for thought that I wanted to share. Despite everything, I did find myself enjoying this episode. I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you guys next time.